Xiaomi may be a new kid on the block, but the Chinese startup known as Little Rice is no longer so little. At five years old, Xiaomi now rivals Apple and Samsung in the Chinese smartphone market and is valued at $45 billion. But worldwide, it's still not a household name. Former Google executive Hugo Barra intends to change that. Born and raised in Brazil, he left a top job as the public face of Android to take Xiaomi global. Joining me today on Studio 1.0, Xiaomi Vice President of Global Operations, Hugo Barra. Hi, Emily. How are so you? So great to have you here. My pleasure. How's your Chinese? Are you taking well, Chinese lessons? is coming along slowly, slowly. <laughs> maybe next time we could do it. I'm going to hold you to that. That's a big promise. Next time, maybe two years from now, three years from now. It's a hard um, language. I understand they call you Tiger Brother. Hu Ga is your Chinese name? Hu Ga. How'd you get that name? Our CEO, Lei Jun, who's a social media rock star, a superstar in China, just did a simple post on Weibo and he said, hey guys, uh, so Hugo is joining us, you know, from, from Google. We got to give him a name. Then people went crazy. Everyone, you know, started suggesting names. I had no say in it. I was communicated on my first day. By the way, you are a Tiger Brother. The big question is, when are you going to start selling phones in the United States? I would tell you if I knew, but I don't. <laughs> we don't have uh, like a set date yet. You know, uh, selling phones is, is a big step up. It's a huge marketing undertaking, you know, building a smartphone brand. Uh, operationally, it's also very complicated because you have to have like after sales service set up. You have to have customer support set up. You know, it takes a huge amount of work plus localizing the hardware. Uh, so we're going to work our way to that, but we're not quite ready yet. Are you saying you will? Someday? We will someday, of course, absolutely. So it, what's it going to take? It's probably going to take having a team here, potentially even a sizable team here to, to sort of manage the whole process operationally, you know, certification, you know, ongoing engineering help and so on. Months away, years away? Uh, it's not, no less than a year plus away. More than a year away. Potentially much more than a year away. You spent a long time at Google. Google's blocked in China. Apps are blocked in China. Is there a way forward for Google in China? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I think it's definitely a tricky issue. I do believe that it may not be sort of the end uh, of it. I personally don't think that it is the end of the road for Google in, in China. Purely thinking from the point of view of how useful Google is right, and the fact that people in China who you know, are universities uh, or who have you know, studied abroad and so on, they, they depend so heavily on Google, even despite uh, the fact that it's blocked, that I just think at the end of the day, someone is going to figure out a way to solve whatever you know, issues exist um, to bring all of this innovation present and future to, to people in China. How satisfied are you with the pace of innovation at Android? I'm quite happy with the pace of innovation, I think especially because I understand how hard it is to make progress you know, when you're literally supporting hundreds of OEMs and partners around the world. In many ways, I think Android is entering a new phase, right, by expressing itself uh, through so many different screens and different types of devices, that there's basically an entirely new and completely unexplored galaxy of possibilities here. Google doesn't really make money off of Android, and it's not doing well when it comes to mobile advertising. And companies like Xiaomi have built huge businesses off the back of Android. Do you think that making Android open was the right call for Google? I think Android as an open platform is the only call that Google could have made on this. It would be impossible to get the level of adoption that we've seen uh, from a closed operating system. It just wouldn't go anywhere, right? Plus, uh, you would never be able to build such an amazing developer story. Android was probably the best decision that Google ever made. 
uh, you know, years ago. And of course, the fruit of that will be around for very, very many decades. But how does Google make money off it? I mean, they pay Apple billions of dollars to have Google on the iPhone. Think about what would have happened if Android wasn't open. If, for example, the apps that were loaded on phones running some alternative closed version of Android were mandated by someone. Um, just think about what that would mean for Google, right? It means that people would not necessarily make a choice of which browser to use, which search engine to use. When you have a closed operating system that mandates you know, certain behaviors on people, it's unfair, right? It would be unfair for Google and, and basically anybody else. So absolutely one of the best things that have ever happened in tech over the last few decades. You think Google would ever close Android, put walls up around it? I think Google would never do that. Absolutely, not, there's absolutely nothing that would convince Larry to do such a thing. Larry handed over a lot of control to Sundar Pichai. What's your relationship with Sundar? I think that was also an amazing decision uh, in many ways because uh, Sundar is very capable. He's the most well-rounded executive at Google. You know, he's a great product guy. He's a great business guy. It frees up time for Larry to think about what should Google be 10 years from now? How do we think about deep minds and artificial intelligence? How does it affect design for future products. It's very hard to do both of those things at the same time, right? Do you and Sundar still have a relationship? I mean, now that you're at Xiaomi, do you guys collaborate? Uh, we do. We are, we're an Android partner, you know, first and foremost. Uh, we try to, you know, be, uh, you know, in front of the pack, if you will, when it comes to upgrading operating system and, you know, using all the innovations that are coming from Google. We spend time together, you know, uh, uh, every few months or so when I come and visit. Would Xiaomi ever build its own operating system? outside of Android? We wouldn't build our own operating system uh, for, for smartphones or TVs or, or these products, you know, simply because it doesn't make sense to do that. Uh, we'd much rather use that engineering horsepower building interesting services and capabilities on top of Android that add value uh, versus, versus starting again. Everyone who's tried over the last few years has completely failed despite having many times more resources than we would have, you know, as a startup, which we, we kind of still are. So we wouldn't. You were born and raised in Brazil. You got into computers. You made it to MIT. You were class president. You should blame my mom, by the <laughs> way, for all, for all of the above. Um, she really is the one person who sort of pushed me all along and still does, by the way. You founded your first company after college, a mobile speech recognition company that got bought by Nuance Communications. That's right, yeah. And that now powers Apple Siri. So there's some amount of code. <laughs> we don't really know how much uh, from our regional uh, days in our startup that made its way, we think, to, uh, to the software that powers Siri today. You joined Google in London, and you rose up through the ranks. You became the public face of Android. What was that ride like? What was it like working for Andy Rubin? It was amazing. I had uh, I worked for for a few really amazing uh, executives and mentors, and then of course Andy, one of the most brilliant people in, in tech ever. Uh, you know, uh, a man who's just so incredibly knowledgeable and whose intuition about technology thinking, you know, years and years ahead is completely unparalleled. So, I was just very, very lucky to be sort of be in the right place at the right time. How did you come across this company called? Xiaomi. Xiaomi was uh, started uh, initially by Lei Jun and, and Bin Lin, uh, the, the two primary founders of a team of a total of eight co-founders. Uh, and Bin was a colleague of mine at Google and then obviously left uh, to do something uh, pretty ballsy and new. So I tracked uh, all of that very closely. But it wasn't until a couple of years into the company's life when Bin came to Mountain View uh, to visit us at Google, and he brought 
their second generation device, Me Too. Uh, it was when I powered that device on and played with it for the first time that it downed on me, that those guys were not joking around. So tell me about your first meeting with Lei Jun. Our first meeting was a four-hour meeting, uh, which tends to be the case with Lei Jun, by the way. Very deep, uh, involved discussions. He's that kind of guy. It was a dinner in, uh, in Beijing uh, in, sometime in late 2012. Um, and we spent time talking about everything, uh, really, from you know mobile to internet to Brazil and cars. I found him to be one of the most fascinating people that I'd ever met. You know, at the same level as someone like Andy Rubin, his ability to understand consumers, think so many years ahead. Four hours flew by, you know, like ten minutes. Um, so it was a pretty amazing experience. And, th and this was Leijun, Ben, and me, yeah. you know, in a translated conversation. So Leijun did speak to you in Chinese? In Chinese, in Chinese, yeah. And, and Ben translated. And Ben translated it. And um, so it was, it was just a surreal but awesome experience. So you're a happy Google employee. You're at the top of Android. How do you decide to take this job? There was part of me that always wanted to, to try something new. Uh, but then beyond that was the, the, the possibility that Xiaomi might just be doing something that would have a similar level of impact in the world as Android itself did. So how did Larry uh, take the news? <laughs> Larry, of course, uh, reached out and, and uh, you know, was supportive, but at the same time uh, trying to see if if that was really what I wanted to do and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, everybody was very supportive. In many ways, uh, I, was, I was sort of leaving to continue what I had been doing on Android, right? Because Xiaomi, uh, if successful, would become potentially one of the most important, if not the most important, eventually partner for the Android team. So in many ways, it was like I was still in the family. What are the differences between working at a Chinese tech company and Google? Uh, so there's a lot in between the lines uh, in the culture, uh, and you you have to be sensitive uh, with what you say and you know who you say it in front of. Xiaomi, I think, is a very interesting mix of Silicon Valley, you know, like straight work as hard as possible culture with more traditional Chinese culture. What makes Xiaomi different and unique from Apple and Samsung? Xiaomi is this really interesting hybrid of things that you'd see in at Apple. You know the an absolute love for design and, and the cult of perfectionism. This is coming straight from our CEO. Is it a phone company? Is it an electronics company? Is it a software company? Is <laughs> it's it an, none of those. Okay, is it an Internet of Things company? It's an Internet company. Okay. That's how we define ourselves. That is the best way to describe Xiaomi. We uh, interact with our customers or users, or as we prefer to call them, fans through the internet, through social media. We sell our products direct. Uh, we are the third largest e-commerce website uh, in China and the largest pure play um, uh, by uh, miles. Um, and we design products taking a lot of uh, input from the community. Probably about 50% of all of the new features, the new services that we end up building as part of our software actually came from the community. You can pinpoint it down to one user's idea. This is very unique. You sell phones, high quality phones, basically at cost, but you make the most of your money, right, by selling services, right? We think of hardware as a platform. 
we think of our phones as a platform. We think of our TV and TV box as a platform. And then on top of that, we have a, a, a number of services and apps that we've built, uh, that we've worked with partners to integrate in, into and so forth, and which do uh, work as a monetization channel for us. And then we have an ecosystem of you know, accessories or gadgets, uh, which are products like you know, not only power banks uh, and, and, and headsets, but all sorts of other connected devices. We have an air purifier, uh, we have uh, an action camera, we have a security camera. Just how much money? Do you so just to give services? you an idea, this year um, we estimate that we'll have about a billion U.S. dollars in net revenues from our services alone. Now you guys are invested in 30 or so different startups, hardware and software companies, and they partner with you. Um, what is the actual relationship there? What sort of a cut do you get? What cut do developers and yeah. the makers of these products get? It's a very unique model, which I haven't seen done in scale uh, anywhere else. Uh, basically, the way it works is we help these companies get started. In many cases, we'll put the founders together and say, hey, you guys should work together and build this. Uh, we'll, we'll get them funded, at least to start with, and, and then we'll sort of leave them alone to operate independently. And then we pick the best products that they make and then we put our brand on those products and we sell it through our e-commerce engine, if you will. And if these guys do a good job, uh, they'll enjoy tremendous success. Uh, some of them might even go public before we do. The startup that manufactures our Mi Band and other wearable products that are coming in the future. They ship about a million of these a month, right? which makes them, this small little Chinese company, the most popular um, you know, fitness wearable uh, uh, device company in the world. How is the money shared between you and these companies? They manufacture it with a contract manufacturer, which we help them connect with. Then they pay those guys some amount of money and they sell it back to us and they make a little bit of margin. Okay. It's as simple as that. How much? Uh, it varies tremendously. Mm. Uh, we actually make good margins through these products differently from our platform products. Uh, they make some margin, we make some margin, so it's a good relationship. So of all the things you do, phones, this, the services, where do you, what's the biggest revenue driver for Xiaomi? Uh, the biggest see? revenue driver, of course, are still phones. That probably still drives most of the profits today as well, without a doubt. Uh, but of course, the trend over time is for our services strategy, which we've talked about, the monetization through services, to really grow and become the main profit engine for the company. International growth. Where is it working? Where isn't it working? So we're, first of all, sort of taking it slowly. Uh, we, we're paying a lot of attention to how market markets react to our strategy, how would we need to change things. We eventually made our way to India and Indonesia, which uh, are two very significant markets, India in particular. Your model is being copied to a certain extent in some of these other countries. Can you succeed where there's a micromax in India, for example? Yeah, so our model has been copied left and right, both in China as well as in other markets, including India and, and others. Um, and, and the way we respond to that is to continue to evolve. The companies that are copying us now are really copying Xiaomi from a year ago. Xiaomi has also been accused of copying. Johnny Ive referred to Xiaomi's phones. He called it theft. He said that you've stolen his design. How do you respond to that? So this whole copycat melodrama all boils down to one chamfered edge on one particular phone model, which was Mi 4, which people said looked like the iPhone 5. And I've been the first one to admit it. Yes, it does look like the iPhone 5. And that chamfered ed edge, by the way, is present in so many other devices. It was, in many ways, people projecting their bias uh, against Chinese companies onto us. Mm -hmm. 
people just couldn't bring themselves to believe that a Chinese company actually could be a world innovator, could build amazingly high quality products, and by the way, sell them for less than half the price of a high-end Apple or Samsung device. I think that drama has quickly started to vanish. And I would actually point out to the device that you have, right, to me note, and there was just nothing you could point to that even sort of remotely resembled. Um, you don't think this looks like an iPhone 6 Plus? It's white. How else does it look <laughs> like an iPhone 6 Plus? You said it comes down to one feature, but as I understand it, the criticism is more about sort of the look and feel of the products in general. So I don't think that's fair, without a doubt. Uh, every smartphone these days kind of looks like every other smartphone, mm -hmm. right? You have to have curved uh, corners. You have to have, you know, like at least a home button in some way, right? That's how interaction design works. I just don't think that we can allow a company to take ownership uh, of things that just are how they are, mm -hmm. right? And I think that if you look at what we've designed in the last, you know, 12 months, you understand how much originality there is in what we do. And to be honest, I think uh, you're gonna see a lot more happening in the opposite direction, right? People taking inspiration on what we do in building new products. Leijun, the CEO, he's often compared to Steve Jobs. He doesn't like that comparison, but he wears the black shirts, he does the one more thing. Why does he do that? So he's no longer wearing black shirts. In fact, <laughs> okay. that changed a while back. He wears a blue button-down shirt, and I think he has like 50 of those because he wears them to the office every single day. And I mean, I, the one more thing was the joke, right? And I think people, uh, people just took it way too seriously. Like, we don't take ourselves seriously at all. You know, that day when that keynote happened in the slide that said one more thing, like the room exploded. On a more serious note, it's been said that one of the reasons you're not rolling out the phones in the US yet is because of intellectual property issues. How protected are you if you do start selling phones in the US? Are you worried about patent law and potentially getting sued. Of course, we are always uh, worried about patent licensing, intellectual property, and so on. I mean, th every company in this industry has had to deal with that. There's two things that we're doing uh, and which take time. One is systematically taking patent licenses uh, around the world. Um, you know, if it's a patent and it's an essential patent, then of course it needs to be licensed, and that's what we're doing. It takes time, All right, right? So we've been meticulously talking to everyone that we need to talk to. And then secondly, we're building our own portfolio of patents, you know, for defensive purposes, because you kind of have to have that. Think of it as like a war chest of sorts. Uh, we're filing a lot of our own patents. We filed over 2,000 patents, uh, which is actually a lot. Uh, we're acquiring patents. That's perhaps one of many factors that determines when we're ready to enter a certain market. You and Apple are kind of jockeying for the top spot in China, uh, but what's happening in China is the, the smartphone market is saturating for the very first time. How worried are you about that? What the data says is that China has already moved into a replacement market, meaning people already have a phone, and every year they just want to buy a new phone. The interesting point, though, is that the replacement cycle is actually coming down a little bit. People are just more anxious to buy a new phone more often. There's a tremendous amount of room for us, we think, to grow, even if the pie itself isn't growing. Would you ever make a car? Uh, would we ever make a car? We're not making a car right now, <laughs> just to be clear. Um, I think that's, a, uh, I think that's a, an extraordinarily difficult task. It's not something that we can build today. We're just not you know, resource to do something like that. But why not? You guys recently raised $1.1 billion. You're now valued at $45 billion. Why is Xiaomi still a private company? I do think that um, 
moving fast uh, and being able to change direction quickly is very important for us. When you're a public company, you're a bit more restrained in your ability to do that, to massively allocate investment into, into something that may not pen out for some time. Um, you know, so I think just being more flexible and being able to move quickly is, is the reason why we probably will be private for quite a long time. What does an IPO look like? Our CEO's answer to this question is the IPO is five years away. Now he's been giving the same answer for the last couple of years. How does Xiaomi live up to a $45 billion valuation? We're only in eight markets up until now. There's so many new products that we're working on. There's so many opportunities and services that people have really you know, haven't even started thinking about. Um, I think 45 is just the beginning. Hugo Barra, thank you so much for joining us thanks, today. Thanks, Emily. Thank so you so much. It's so great to have you. <laughs>